Kate and Caitlin and Lakeland. Lakeland, Lakeland, age 17, still at home. You probably have heard and seen Cliff or, through the years. About, what'd you say, about 16 years ago, you spoke at the marriage retreat. And he makes regular appearances on GBN and other uh, programs. He's a regular speaker for us at, at PTP. He's been here at least once before. And we're so grateful to have Brother Cliff with us. Cliff, glad you're here. He's been a little bit under the weather, but he's over all that. And we're so thankful you're able to make the trip. Thank you, Brother David. And I want to thank the congregation here for the opportunity, the invitation to come and especially for the willingness on your part here at Midway to work with me on the scheduling of a gospel meeting. I know it's unusual for a gospel meeting to begin on Sunday night and only to run through Tuesday, but that's what I was able to do, and you were willing to accommodate that, and I want to thank you so much for that willingness. You know, we have a lot to look at, even in the three nights, Lord willing, that are before us, including this present hour, of course. But I want to go ahead and tell you that Tuesday evening, we will make that youth night. And so all of your youth here at Midway, certainly we would want them to be back. But we would like for you to bring your friends from school or from college, uh, youth, anyone you might say... Uh, college age and below, I consider youth. I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but uh, let's make that youth night coming up on Tuesday to close out our meeting, and we'll look forward to a special study together that night. I know we've probably all heard of the joke about the uh, empty book. You just thumb through it, and it's empty page after empty page after empty page, and after observing that the book has no contents whatsoever in the form of literature or writing, you look at the cover of it and it says on the front cover, everything I know about marriage. Everything I know about marriage. And the book is, as we say in our part of Alabama, slap empty. It's just slap empty. And that's everything we know about marriage. Well, if you can appreciate that, then tonight you might can appreciate the title as we begin this study. I've entitled this, What I Know, now I'm putting myself out on a limb here, What I Know For Sure About Marriage. What I Know For Sure about marriage. Now, it's not going to be coming from my experience. I have been married about 20, well, exactly 25 years. I have been married, but some of you have been married, I know, far longer than that. And experience is good. Experience is helpful. But I think you would much rather hear a man stand and preach what the Word of God says about marriage instead of drawing only, as it were, on his own experiences. And so tonight, we're going to be directing our attention, as you know, to the Bible. But based on these things that we'll be pulling out of Scripture, I can say unreservedly that these are some things that I know for sure about marriage. Now, as you open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, that's where we're going to begin. Genesis chapter 2. 
There are at least three types of people in this auditorium tonight that need this sermon. At least three types. Number one, there are folks in here tonight who are married. I are one of those, okay? Married folks need this sermon. Number two, there are folks in here tonight, probably especially younger folks, who one day will be married. And so you need this sermon here this evening. And then number three, there are folks in here tonight who know other people who are married. And so as a brother or sister in Christ, you need this sermon tonight as well because always, of course, we minister one to another as we strive to live the Christian life together. And so I hope you can appreciate with me the pertinence of our thoughts as we begin. Number one, the first thing that I know for sure about marriage is this. I know that marriage is an institution created by God himself. I know that. Open your Bibles to Genesis 2. You're already there. Remember in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him, a helper suitable for him. So God addressed man's need. Man was alone. It was not good, God said. In fact, the only thing in the six days of creation that God looked at and said not good, it was not good for man to be alone. And so God addresses that by way of marriage. Let's move down to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. You know, people have described the book of Genesis as a book of firsts. The, the firsts of so many things are recorded in this book. Did you ever realize that this is the first surgery? God essentially performed a surgery. Even the way it's described there by telling us that he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And so there's a first, but we're not finished. Look at verse 22. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because... She was taken out of man. You know, there's something that we do miss. There's something naturally that we lack from a written text. And what that is, is we miss the inflection of the human voice. That, that doesn't come out in the written text. In fact, that reminds me of, of something that is comical in, in the rear view. I did not find it too funny years ago. But uh, I had a lady texting me. And we were texting about a Bible matter, a Bible discussion. And she was taking issue with what I said. And I was taking issue, really, frankly, with what she was saying also. And so she texted me back over the phone. She says, well, I don't like the tone of what you're saying. Did that strike you odd? And my wife was right there beside me. And I said, she does not like my tone. I, you know. Now, it's one thing for my wife to tell me that if we're talking, but when, when I get that over text, I can't win. You know, there's just no way to win with that. 
Well, with the written text, of course, we, we don't hear inflection, we don't hear volume, we don't hear tone of voice. But if we could, don't you wish that you could hear the inflection with which Adam must have made that statement in verse 23? having laid eyes on his wife, Mother Eve, for the first time. I've got a feeling it was not, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of my... I don't believe that for a minute. This is God's gift to Adam. God has formed him a helper suitable for his needs. I wish I could hear the inflection in his voice. Now, I believe at the end of verse 23, I believe that's the end of Adam's words. And I believe what we find in verse 24 now are the words of the Holy Spirit through Moses as he wrote this verse. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. A man's cleaving to his wife. What do we call the institution comprised of man and wife, we call that marriage. And brothers and sisters and dear friends, we read about its very genesis. We read about its very origin right here in Genesis chapter 2. I know. Now there's a lot I don't know about marriage. And if my wife were here tonight, she'd be seated right here and she'd be shaking her hand or her head. But there's one thing I do know about marriage. And that is, it's an institution created by God. Now, before I leave this first point, let's look at an implication about that. Since we know that God created this institution, God designed this institution, God ordered this institution, take a wild guess whose law governs that institution. God's law. It was a sad day. I remember, I remember one event where I was that summer, not long after it happened, but it was a sad day back, I think, in 2015 when the Supreme Court of the United States came out and said, supposedly, that homosexual marriage is a constitutional right. Well, I respect our political leaders to the best that I can in keeping with texts like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and other texts. But I'm here to tell you they missed it. They missed it on that. Marriage is an institution created by God. Therefore, His laws govern it. Not the laws of any nation, high as high though they may be, God's law is still what governs marriage. You're going to have to excuse me just a moment. <coughs> I'm well, but I've still got that little scratch in my throat. All right, point number two. Let's move on to something else that I know for sure about marriage. And that is that I know marriage is the only acceptable relationship for sexual expression and fulfillment. I know that about marriage. Turn over with me to the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It's amazing how many eternal principles can be drawn, rightfully so, out of this one statement of Scripture. Look at it with me. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Marriage 
is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers, that would be better translated fornicators, and adulterers, God will judge. Have you ever thought about how you would describe human sexual relationship outside of marriage? Well, the Bible has a word for that. It's called fornication. In fact, I find it very unfortunate that most modern translations have abandoned use of the word fornication, opting for something much broader and, and much vaguer, if vague, vaguer is a word, by simply calling it sexual immorality. The Bible word fornication is talking about sexual relationship outside of the bounds of God-ordained marriage. That's what it is. Now, all adultery, that is literal adultery, all adultery is fornication. But not necessarily all fornication would qualify or classify as adultery. Someone says, well, what makes it adultery? That's when a marriage bond has been violated. That's when one or both of the persons who are committing fornication with each other are actually married to a rightful spouse, someone else. And then in that case, of course, adultery is the result. Now, what's this verse teaching us? Well, it's teaching us about human sexuality, about sexual expression and sexual fulfillment. And the short answer is, is that God has placed that squarely within the bounds of marriage. Going so far as to say, look, marriage is honorable in all. Regardless of the, the strata of social society, marriage is honorable. It's honorable for the poor. It's honorable for the rich. Regardless of education, marriage is honorable for the uneducated. It's honorable for the very educated. Regardless of race or ethnicity, Marriage is honorable, regardless of whether a couple are saints or a couple are sinners. If they're eligible candidates to be married, marriage is honorable in all. And in connection to that, the inspired writer goes on to say, and the coite, the marriage bed, undefiled. That is the very word from which we derive our medical term for sex, coitus, coite. If you want to make a note, you can note uh, Romans 9 and verse 10. The same Greek word is used in Romans 9 and verse 10 of Rebekah in her relationship with Isaac. And there it's translated conceived, conceived. And so what we learn is that Marriage is the only acceptable relationship for human sexual expression and fulfillment. God placed it squarely in that realm. In that realm, it's honorable. In that realm, it's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing. Read Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 21. It's a blessing. But outside of that relationship between man and his God-ordained wife... It's sinful. It's fornication and perhaps adultery. It's wrong. And the Bible says here that God will judge 
those who commit such things. That's something else I know for sure about marriage. Now, once again, before we leave that second point, is that a biblical truth that we need to be instilling in our young people in this day and time? I mean, it's not like sex is thrown at them on, uh, from every angle today, is it? Well, that would be ludicrous if I really believed that. I mean, human sexuality is flaunted. It's used for anything from selling uh, parts at a junkyard, if you've ever seen those billboards. It's in the lyrics of, of popular music. It is sensationalized on television and movie screens. And what the world is saying about human sexual relationship is wrong. It's just wrong. And what's really, really bad is, and the devil does this. This is what the devil does. The devil takes something that is good and, and wonderful and awesome and holy. I'm talking about the human sexual relationship. And the devil removes it from where it belongs and he sullies it. He taints it. He defiles it. He ruins it. We need to be teaching our children about the biblical plan for sex. Someone says, well, that's just uncomfortable. Let me tell you what's more uncomfortable is rearing a young man or a young woman who gets his sexual education from the world. That's a, that will prove to be a whole lot more uncomfortable. Mamas, you need to step up and start teaching your daughters. Daddies, you need to step up and start teaching your sons. And whereas things are appropriate, there's times when mamas might need to give certain perspectives to their sons and daddies might need to give certain perspectives to their daughters. But we need to take it on in our hands as parents that, look, this is God's truth on the matter, and it's my job as mom and daddy to see that my kids know what the truth is. Amen? Yeah, it might not be easy, but amen. That's the way it needs to be. All right, point number three. What's something else that I know for sure about marriage? I know that marriage is the divinely intended origin and haven for children. Now, this is not to say, and I want to be crystal clear on this, this is not to say that any precious child that is born outside of marriage is not loved, is not beautiful, is not wonderful, is not precious. I'm not saying that uh, any child does not fit those qualities. But what I am saying, or actually what the Word of God is saying, is that God's intended origin for children, God's intended haven for precious babies, has been and will always be the home. It has always been God's intended place that it be in marriage. And we know today, I mean, modern psychology, the studies abound. Uh, we know from anecdotal evidence, we know from life experience, and most of all, we know from the scriptures, we know what an advantage children have who are born into married homes with a father and a mother there to rear them. We know that. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 and verse 28, keep in mind that... Uh, Perhaps the earliest command or one of the earliest commands that God gave Adam and Eve was to multiply and replenish the earth. God there, he not only performed the first surgery, he, he would also perform the first wedding ceremony when he brought 
Eve to Adam and, and they became husband and wife. And it was in that union that God intended for procreation to occur. But let me show you something else that's interesting to think about on that. Turn over with me to the New Testament to Luke chapter 2. Think about the wisdom of God that when it came time to send His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this lost world to save sinners, you know, God, I suppose, He, he, he could have just sent Jesus as an orphan, I guess, but He didn't. He provided a home. He provided a home and he even safeguarded that home, remember, by means of the angelic message to Joseph. Joseph had found out that Mary was pregnant and he knew that he wasn't responsible for that. And so Joseph was going to go ahead and put her away. He was going to go ahead and basically divorce her. The betrothal in that Jewish society, it was as binding as the, as the marriage. And so he was going to end it before it got started and God protected that marriage. He sent that angel and the angel explained to Joseph that, hey, she's done nothing wrong. This, this is God's work. This is God's miracle. And the angel thereby allayed Joseph's fears and Joseph wound up taking Mary to be his wife. He did not know her sexually until after she had brought forth her firstborn son, Jesus, the virgin-born Savior. Look in Luke 2 and verse 48. Jesus grew up in a home. After he was lost at the feast at about age 12, you know, his family had to go back to Jerusalem. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. God in his wisdom knew that his only begotten son, when he leaves heaven and comes into this earth, that he's going to have an earthly, though not biological, father, and he's going to have an earthly mother. God sent his son into the lovely confines of a home. That is God's intention for the entrance of children into this world. Move down to verse 51, Luke 2, 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Jesus, being part of that home, he filled his rightful role in that home. Can you imagine that? That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. That the God of eternity, the God of, who, of creation, who according to Colossians 1 and verse 16, created everything. But in his home, he was subject to mom and daddy. He listened to Joseph. He listened to Mary. And he obeyed them. Isn't that amazing? And that just shows you the wisdom of our God. Now, what's the result? Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased intellectually in wisdom. He grew physically in stature he increased or grew uh, socially in favor with man and he increased and grew spiritually in favor with God. Someone says, well, I don't know how that's possible. Well, I don't either, except for the fact that he was made man 
And so somehow, some way, as a man, he had to grow in favor with God just like you and I do. I don't know how to explain that. I know he never sinned, so he didn't have that hurdle to get over. But somehow, some way, he had to grow. Folks, in the rightful Christian home, children will be provided for in such a way that just like Jesus here in verse 52, children can grow intellectually, they can grow physically, they can grow spiritually, and they can grow socially. I know for sure that marriage and the home is the divinely intended origin and haven for children. All right, point number four. <coughs> this is getting harder the further I go. I know for sure this about marriage. I know that marriage is a relationship that requires ongoing attention and work. Now, I know that from the Bible, but I can also say I know that one from experience too. Okay? I think anybody who's been married over a year will tell you, you know what, this marriage stuff requires attention. You've you got to be paying attention to what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. It takes work. Yeah, that's right. And the Bible suggests the same as well. Go over with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. A wonderful passage, a marvelous verse, and yet one that I wonder sometimes if the full profundity of it sinks in to our understanding. In other words, I wonder if we really appreciate the profound nature of what Peter's telling us, or better, the Holy Spirit through Peter is telling us here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands. Now, Peter's talking to us, men. Husbands. Dwell with them, that is, your respective wives. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. More modern versions might read something to the effect, dwell with them in understanding, or dwell with them with understanding. Men, I have to level with you now as, as a man talking to men here for just a moment. The day that you said I do and your wife did too, you took that woman on as your lifelong study. Hey, what better subject could there be should be your attitude. That's my attitude toward Miss Beth. What better subject could there be for my lifelong study than my wife? Because I'm here to tell you, we as men do not necessarily understand women naturally. It's not meant to be funny, but it is. We just don't. And so the Bible's telling us, the Holy Spirit through Peter is commanding us to dwell with them according to understanding. That takes work. Okay, that takes work. Everything from learning about the intricacies of a monthly cycle and how that affects thinking and how that affects emotions to, to understanding her emotional side and how she's not a man. Thank God she's not a man. But because she's not a man, she doesn't think the way I think. And sometimes it drives me crazy. Well, Cliff, you need to read 1 Peter 3, 7. And you need to take it seriously. And you need to realize that, that that wife right there is my God-given gift, my life 
long study. But now, sisters, you're not off the hook entirely. Go with me now to the book of Titus. Let's go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Notice something that the aged sisters in the congregation are to be doing for the younger sisters. Verse 3. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Teach the young women to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Folks, there, there, there are a number of inaccuracies. I'm going to be kind, and instead of just calling them lies, I'll just say inaccuracies. There are a number of inaccuracies. David, is there not a clock in this place? Oh, okay. All right. If I, all right. If I go over, it's the all's fault. You need the clock in a better place. There are a number of inaccuracies that we feed ourselves about marriage. And a lot of those are along the lines of, oh, don't worry about the details. It will all come naturally. No, 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 no. There's so much about marriage that does not come naturally. There is so much about marriage that is not innate. Marriage is a pursuit. Marriage is a relationship. And like so many other pursuits in life, if you want to be good at it, you have to apply yourself and you have to seek knowledge and training and experience and understanding. Why is it that older women would need to teach the younger women to love their husbands? You say, well, that ought to come naturally. Folks, have you ever realized there's a practical side to love? There are times, sister, when, when you have all the emotional love in your heart toward your husband that you can have, but you might not know how to manifest that toward him to help him where he is in this present situation. But I can guarantee you there's some older sisters in Christ that have been in that very scenario that if you can go to them and bend their ear, I guarantee you they can show you and teach you and help you to learn the practical aspects of how to love your husband, make your husband feel loved, and to love him in a way that is useful and beneficial to him. And all the while, the Bible right here is telling us, lean on each other like that. Older sisters, teach the younger ones. Same thing about loving children. Yeah, there, there should be a lot of natural, uh, natural things that come with motherly love toward a child. But why is it that when young couples start having babies, many of them so often, they want to move back toward where? They want to move back closer to mama. You know Why? Because there's practical things to loving a child that aren't natural. They don't just come naturally. You have to learn some of that stuff. And so I know this about marriage. I know that marriage is a relationship that requires attention and ongoing work. Some of us were talking and David mentioned the marriage retreat that for years and years and years the Jacksonville congregation hosted. You know, that's a good thing. It was even a good thing that year in 2006 when they had me for a speaker. In spite of that, it was still a good thing. 
My wife and I have been to every one they ever had, I think with the exception of either two or three. Let's just say three to be safe. And I mean, they've had it 20 to 30 years. And we've made it a priority. Our marriage was important enough that we, we knew the, the need to go. And I tell you what, it's really helped Beth a lot through the years. <laughs> no, it's helped me far more, I know, than it has Beth. All right, number five, let's move on. Something else that I know about marriage for sure is I know that marriage is a relationship that holds great potential whether for good or for bad. I'm not doing anything. Let that sink in, folks. This may be the most important point of the night for those of you who are here who are yet unmarried, but one day you will be married. This may be the most important point. Marriage holds greater, bigger potential than what you and I could ever fully realize and that potential can be for unspeakable good. But it can also be, believe it or not, for unspeakable harm. Do you know second only, second only to the decision whether or not to obey the gospel. That marriage is the biggest decision and who you marry is the next biggest decision as to where you will spend eternity. Now you, you let that sink. And, and that, that's not preacher talk. I mean, just do a little bit of thinking right here for a moment. Who else are you going to lie down with most every night, wake up with most every morning, be with in, in most of your free or leisure time, build a family together with, share joys and sorrows with, share pursuits and dreams with. There's nobody else on earth that's going to affect you anymore over the course of your lifetime than the person with whom you spend your life. Now, I don't want to scare anybody, but if it helps you, then yeah, be scared. Young folks, what that means is get it right or don't get married. There is something worse than being unmarried. You know what it is? It's being married to the wrong type of person. And I like to say type. I do not subscribe to this stuff that in God's plan there's only one person, you know, for me. And out of eight billion people, good luck. I hope I can find her. I don't believe that. I believe there's one type of person I need to be with. And something that is worse than being unmarried is being married to the wrong type of person. Look over with me to 1 Kings 21 and verse 25. 1 Kings 21, 25. But there was none like unto Ahab... So this is a superlative statement, but it's not a complimentary one. There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking any of the blame off of Ahab. Some preachers may like to do that. I'm not. 
A man's his own man. He's going to stand to give an account for his own sins. Okay? But in this scenario and in all marriages, spouses are culpable to a degree. If they're not, they certainly can be to a degree culpable. And here the Bible makes it crystal clear that in all the wickedness of Ahab, there was somebody behind him stirring him up. And it was his wife. How terrible to find yourself married to a husband or wife who only seems to stir you up for bad, not for good. How wonderful and what a heaven-sent blessing to find yourself married to a husband or a wife who stirs you up for good. I know for sure that marriage is a relationship that holds great potential, whether for good or for bad. All right, two more very quickly. Number six, I know for sure that marriage is a relationship into which not everyone can scripturally enter. Boy, this is unpopular in our day and time. You know, I guess it goes without saying that when the highest court in your land, when they come out and say, look, two men, they can be married. Two women, they can be married. I I guess the American mentality naturally would be, hey, anybody can be married. But do you know the Bible teaches that not everybody has the scriptural right to be married. In fact, Jesus taught this from his own lips. He taught this personally. Go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. Jesus has been asked about divorce. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning there in verses 4, 5, and 6. He draws the divine conclusion, verse 6, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God's rule is one man and one woman for life. That's God's rule. There is one exception. Move down to verse 9. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away, that's the technical or legal term for divorce, whosoever shall put away his wife, and here's the exception, except it be for fornication. And by the way, I'm so thankful that we can read it from a version that puts it like it translates. Fornication. And shall marry another committeth adultery. Wait, whoa, wait a minute now. Jesus, you said that if I, if I divorce Miss Beth, God forbid, Miss Beth's not been committing fornication behind my back. She, she's innocent of that, but I put her away. And then I turn around and I marry another. I'm committing, adult, draw that E-T-H, committeth, the Greek present tense. You keep on committing adultery. If you enter into that subsequent marriage that has no judicial uh, authority from God, as long as you're in that relationship, you keep on committing adultery. So if I, by virtue of entering into a marriage, am committing sin and I continue in sin as long as I'm in that marriage, you know what that meant? That meant I never had the right to enter that. When I put away my dear wife with no scriptural grounds of fornication, I had no right to enter a subsequent marriage, period. Now, I know that, that's hard. Someone said, man, that's hard. Well, two things on that. Number one, 
it wouldn't be as hard as it is if we didn't live in the society we live in. Back 200 years ago, even in this nation, it wouldn't have seemed as hard. You know why? Because 200 years ago in this nation, divorce was nearly unheard of. So number one, keep that in mind. Number two, ask yourself this question. Why do you think God would erect such a high and protective wall around marriage? That's what Matthew 19, 9 is. I mean, that's a high wall, brother. I, I, I'll admit it. That's strict. Why would God put such a protective wall around the institution of marriage? Ask yourself that. And the obvious answer is, is because God intends to protect this institution. God takes it seriously. Young people, don't you ever enter into marriage so long as you ever think that divorce is an out. Don't do it. Do yourself a favor. Do your future spouse a favor. If divorce is an out in the back of your mind, just don't get married. Period. Because one thing I know for sure about marriage is that not everyone can scripturally enter that contract. All right, number seven and finally tonight, and this is perhaps the most beautiful of all these. Something else I know for sure about marriage is that marriage is a picture. It is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church, the church of Christ. Open with me to Ephesians 5 and we'll wrap up for the evening. Ephesians chapter 5, you think the way it starts off in verse 22, you think that Paul really wants to talk about marriage. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. People in the world scratch their head and they're like, why would a woman ever agree to that? Why would a woman ever want to submit herself to, to a man, to her husband? Why? They, they quit reading before verse 25. This is what the husband's supposed to be doing. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You show me a man that sacrificially loves his wife the way that Christ loves the church, and I'll show you a woman who should be more than willing to submit to his leadership. Folks, the reason our marriages are messed up is because we don't go by the book. Who do you think knows how to make a happy marriage? The one who made marriage. And husbands, if you and I would step up and if we would do what God tells us to do and love our wives, now you think about this. Think about loving your wife the way Jesus Christ loves this church. Man, that's a challenge. But if we do what we're supposed to do as husbands, wives, you step up as women and do what you're supposed to do as wives, I'll tell you what the result will be. It's known as marital bliss. That's what it's known as. You say, well, Cliff, you sound mighty confident about that. Folks, I'm deadly confident in the ability of God. God knows what he's doing. I promise you, God knows what he's doing. He wrote the book on it. You and I, we just have to do what he tells us to do in faith. Now, we thought Paul wanted to talk about marriage. But Paul goes into all that and he says even more. But get down there with me to verse 32. 
All this while, look at what Paul's seeing, as it were, in his mind's eye. As the, the Holy Spirit is guiding him to write these words, he says, this is a great mystery, but, he says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. If we really wanted to dig more deeply into the beautiful relationship between husband and wife, we would need to spend a lot of time contemplating the beautiful relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. That love, that headship and submission, that, that mutual devotion one to the other, how wonderful marriage is. And what a picture we see of Christ and the church in that relationship. All right, let's close our Bibles. Unless, uh, I don't guess you use song books here. You probably use these television screens. But just for a moment as you close your Bibles, let's think about the Lord's invitation. I know we've talked about marriage tonight, but in order to appreciate the importance of God's Word on anything, we need to first realize that God's the final word on all matters spiritual. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're, you're already a husband or you're already a wife or one day you want to be the best husband or the best wife that you can be, you first need to be a Christian. Oh, there's a lot of good husbands, I'm sure, who are not Christians, I guess. There's a lot of good wives, I'm sure, who are not Christians, I guess. I'll tell you this, with all love and respect, they just can't compare to a Christian husband, to a Christian wife. Thank God for Christian husbands and Christian wives. What about you? You ready to become a Christian tonight? It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. Believe on Jesus Christ, John 8, 24. Repent and turn away from the practice of sin, Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus as the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and put Him on in baptism, Galatians 3, 27, for the purpose of washing away your sins, Acts 22, 16. Friend, we can help you tonight to be a Christian and thereby to be better qualified to be the best husband or the best wife that you can be. Brother or sister, if you've done those things and you're here tonight as a Christian, but but there's sin that's crept back into your life and it's present in your life tonight. You haven't renounced it. You haven't turned away from it. What are you doing? Older gentleman told me this past Saturday. He said, the world at its worst needs the church at her best. And here you are as a member of the church and not faithful. We need you. We need you back on the front lines. We need you to do right, fly right, act right. Repent in your heart. We'd love to pray with you and for you. And the Bible says God wants to forgive you. He wants you to come back home. Please come as we stand and as we sing.